Welcome to How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships from True Story FM. Today, it's time to stop trying to rescue your toaster. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Seth Nelson, and I am here, as always, with my good friend, Pete Wright. Today, we're talking about codependency. In a healthy marriage, it's expected that partners are there to support one another. But what happens when that support turns unhealthy? And how can codependent behavior impact the marriage process and the divorce process? This week on the show, we welcome Mary Joy, licensed mental health counselor and Florida Supreme Court certified family mediator to talk about codependency, divorce, and recovery. Mary, welcome to the toaster. It's so nice to be at the toaster, Seth. I appreciate that very much. So Pete, is it at the toaster or are we in the toaster? I've been staying up late. I know. You know I know. This, wondering is, these this things. is the central question of today's show. Is that what you're telling me, Seth? <laughs> I'm not saying that. The semantics. <laughs> the semantics are important. For crying out loud, they're huge. <laughs> oh, God. That's like a dagger to my heart telling a lawyer it's just semantics. No, oh, I said my semantics God, are important. No, semantics are important. I said semantics are important. I missed that part. Oh, thank God. Uh, Seth, I'm a little okay. bit worried about you. Do we need to talk about your codependent behavior right now? We might. <laughs> we, we might. And I would first like to have Mary define what that is, yes. because I could have been using it wrong all these years when talking about I'm just a pack animal with my dogs. So let's see if I'm doing this right. Well, all of us are a little codependent with someone at some time. So that it's, it, it, that's not a problem. But it's losing yourself taking care of others, just the loss of yourself. It's a total loss of self. Someone who's a caregiver who doesn't take care of themselves, very common that a caregiver will pass away before the person they're taking care of, that's codependence. But don't confuse it with compassion because we all have to be compassionate and help one another. But when you lose yourself helping someone else, then it's codependence. Okay, that you used a term around where codependence, the term came from in one of your videos that I watched this morning. And I actually learned something because I'd never actually put it together. Can you define it the way you define it in your handy video? Yes, it used to mean the original intention was that you were living with someone who was dependent on a substance, which made you co-dependent, but it's expanded more than that. And I wish they would use the actual term some researchers started using, which was pathological altruism. Semantics are important, Seth. Um, pathological altruism is meaning you mean you you think the best of the worst of people. It is how people follow Jim Jones and drink the Kool-Aid. You know, it is how people um, felt sorry for Ted Bundy when he was hitchhiking with a cast on his arm or his leg and they picked him up. So that is what you need to watch out for is pathological altruism. I wish they would change it because codependency is not a formal diagnostic manual disorder. I'm sure Seth as an attorney is familiar with the DSM-5. It's a diagnostic manual. It's not in there. And it should be because they've never been able to really pinpoint what it is. So I like pathological altruism, but we'll see what happens in the future. That was coined by a woman named Barbara Oakley, by the way. I can't take credit for that. I absolutely adore that uh, meaning. of yes. that's path. I've never even heard. Seth, have you heard of this? I have not, but I'm a little concerned that you adore pathological <laughs> altruism. <laughs> well, I adore it as a, I adore it as a um, as a diagnosis because it will. I mean, insurance companies will pay for codependency because it's a serious problem. Because most counselors, we don't usually see the alcoholic. We usually see the codependent. The codependent. We don't see the person who needs caregiving. We see the caregiver. We, we see the person who's hurting from living with someone who's disordered. 
So if you live with someone who's disordered, you you might be codependent, but that's hopefully that explains it. And also, Mary, just real quick, I, I know this isn't the topic of our conversation today, but you mentioned DSM-5. Can you just explain to everyone what that is and how it gets used? Yes, it is a diagnostic and statistical manual of the American Psychiatric Association. It is the fifth edition, and it is what we use for insurance coding. It has criteria that need to be met to give someone a disorder. So it is a diagnostic manual on the same token. It is not a Bible. I think a lot of people just go a Googling and say, oh, that's me or that's, you know, that's Joe or that's Sandy or whatever name they choose. But no, it's it's a very, um, you have to use it with absolute integrity. With great power comes great responsibility. Yes. <laughs> Yes, there responsibility. Yeah. Yes. I uh, okay. So we you, that is that is an extraordinarily helpful uh, definition, and I hope it's helpful for people out there who are uh, thinking who, who think they really know where it came from, because knowing where it came from really helped me figure out how to characterize codependence or pathological altruism. I'm gonna I'm I'm all in on pathological altruism. I'm gonna I'm gonna replace it everywhere. Uh, yes. uh graffiti, whatever it takes. So yes. <laughs> uh, how does before we talk about how uh, this impacts a divorce, how does it impact a marriage? When does it become unhealthy? Because you you already mentioned that there that compassion is it lies on the other side, it seems, of a fine line between pathological altruism and, and just being a good partner. It profoundly affects marriage. And usually the person who most times will see this dynamic with someone who's narcissistic or sociopathic, and they're fine in the marriage, as long as the codependent does what they say. That's what we see. That it's a power struggle. And actually, they're both driven, a narcissist and a codependent are both driven by a subconscious fear of abandonment. So one is using power and control over the other, and the other one is seeking to subjugate or to try to match and uh, nag. And, and, you know, you must get help for your drinking. Well, you can tell someone to get help for their drinking all you want, but if, unless they don't want to, they won't do it. So we see a spectrum of codependency from the doormat to the nagger. And they're both driven by a fear of abandonment and a need to be needed instead of a desire to be wanted, which is much more healthy. Oh, my God, Pete. Andy's going to have a hard time naming this show because I've heard like five different amazing terms, the need to be needed as opposed to what was it, Mary? I want to the desire to be wanted. Yeah, it's more it's healthier to want to be wanted than to need to be needed. And because I'm a recovered one of those and I went to an addiction specialist to get better from it. Now, mind you, there's no pills for that. But I wanted to know what was going on in my brain because I'm a psychiatrist's daughter, which I was an extension of my family's image. So I said, what's going on in my brain that I say yes when I mean no and no when I mean yes. That's a very common thing, a people-pleasing uh, strategy that codependents use. Uh, you, you dumb yourself down to make everybody else feel better. So yes, there's like five or six shows in that. The, the, the need to be needed should just be overridden by, I want to be wanted. And if someone doesn't need me, that doesn't make me less valuable. Okay, you, since you you just outed yourself as a recovering codependent, I have to ask you about the fog of codependency or the fog of pathological altruism. At what point do you realize you're in this relationship? Like, what is it? What does it take to jar you into, I guess, awareness or a sense of readiness for change in your life? How does that work? What was that? What was your experience? Just like addiction, a rock bottom moment. Um, my ex-husband of 20 years, he did many, many little things that I could overlook and forgive because 
you know, back then you, you just, you just obeyed and stayed. And that was the dynamic I was taught in. But, uh, I realized the financial abuse was absolutely worse than any other abuse, but you, you hit a rock bottom. He, he filed bankruptcy in the IRS, didn't tell me. And then he, um, borrowed money against our house and didn't tell me. And the bank called me and I went, wow, I have hit rock bottom. And, and then I realized, I said, okay, I was in graduate school when these things happened, mind you. So here I was reading textbooks in the DSM-5. And even though I'd been to therapy, nobody explained the neuroscience of what I was doing. Nobody explained what a trauma bond was to me. And then the light bulb just went on and I developed an exit strategy and called someone like Seth and got myself out of the mess because there was other abuse too, but I don't, you know, I don't really need to visit that, but it's just a rock bottom experience. Before someone hits rock bottom, if they're going to see a counselor, because you said the person that is the codependent person is going to be the one going to seek help, yes. right? They're going to go to the counselor. So yes. is that a sign in and of itself? Like, wait a minute, maybe I'm codependent here before you hit rock bottom. Absolutely. And I wish, like I said, I wish counselors would explain trauma bonds to me. A trauma bond, narcissists, sociopaths, anybody that's disordered or anyone who's manipulative, actually, we won't even label them. They're wonderful and then they're horrible. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll isn't real. So the trauma bond is created when they're nice and they're love bombing you, as pop psychology says. It releases dopamine, oxytocin, which is that pesky trust hormone. You trust that person. And then when they're not nice to you, you get adrenaline and cortisol, which is stress hormones. So you start chasing and fawning after the person who proposed to you, loved you, you know, took care of you, and then all of a sudden discards you. So they highly, and in narcissism, it's called that they highly value people and then they, um, they devalue them. They discard them. So there's an elevation that they choose and then they discard you. Same with borderline disorder, sociopaths do it too. So that trauma bond is created and they know exactly what they're doing. They don't know why they're doing it, but they know exactly what they're doing. I wish someone had explained that to me. If they did, it would help understand it. I hope somebody's out there listening. This is why when all of you say, why don't you just leave? That's the same as saying to someone, why don't you just quit smoking? Why don't you just quit doing heroin? Why don't you just quit drinking? Because if you don't understand the neuroscience and biochemical reactivity of it, and I don't mean to get real, um, you know, esoteric or scientific, but there's hard science behind what keeps you. No, Mary, I actually think that helps. Yeah. It, it helped me. I was, I was reading it in the textbooks. When people understand that it's physiological, right? There's something going on in my body, in my brain that you can't just take a pill for and fix that you have to retrain your brain. Yes. Then I think that is step one in understanding like, okay. And it's also step one for your friends to understand, like, why don't you stop drinking? Cause I'm an alcoholic, but the alcoholic never says that. Right. right. And that's the problem with the question. It just totally misunderstands the brain, misunderstands the disease misunderstands the dynamics of what's truly happening here. Yes. And it is physiological. And when people understand that, I think it gets into the realm of, okay, I get that if I break my arm, I have to have it set in a cast. Something's going on. But the brain, you just can't see it. Exactly. Right? It doesn't show up on an x-ray. 
We have PET scans. We just don't use them. I wish they would because it would show up on a PET scan. Actually, your empathy is in your prefrontal cortex. Narcissists and sociopaths lack a prefrontal cortex activity. That's where your empathy resides. It's right in your forehead. And um, codependents have too much empathy. And so do you see how this dynamic is just entwined? It lights, I'll bet it lights up like a headlight too, right? Yeah, yeah. it does. When we give, when anyone gives, they feel good. This is why philanthropy is wonderful. That philanthropy is not codependency. But when you don't give, you feel badly. But a codependent, you just exponential. They only feel good when they give. They do not know how to receive. And teaching a codependent, as Seth said, to retrain the brain that you cannot give without receiving first. You can't. I cannot give you $100 if you ask for it, if I don't, if I only have 80. But a codependent would go out and borrow 20 more, give it to you and be in debt for 20. If that, that's just put some emotional math to make it easy. All right. So that, that, that leads me to a question. Pete, yeah. can I borrow a hundred bucks? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I see where this is going, and I'm still going to give you my last aid. I'm in trouble, you guys. I'm in trouble. Well, you know, that actually leads to let, let's talk about divorce, because all of this gets me thinking about the complexity of severing a relationship that is codependent. There has to be, I, I gather, a, a place where you realize I know I'm in a marriage that is not suitable for me anymore, and yet I am still, uh, is it even fair to say, addicted to the relationship? Yes, it's fair to say that. It's absolutely fair to say it. It's just like addiction. Like you, you can tell yourself every day, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put these cigarettes down. I'm gonna put these cigarettes down, but there's just something that clicks in that just drives you to do it even. And it's, there's a name for, there's a name for all these things called cognitive dissonance. You know someone's bad for you, but you stay with them and you justify it. Just like, I know cigarette smoking is bad, but it kills my appetite and I'm losing weight. That's cognitive dissonance. Two incongruent beliefs at the same time occurring. They're simultaneous. Very difficult to break that. So you're kind of self-trauma bonding when you have that cognitive dissonance. Sure. So let's let's talk about first the the nature of separation. What does it look like to realize it's it's time to separate and I'm codependent? You you have to go through that wake up at some point and then what? Well, you wake up and then you usually start blaming yourself, which is equally as bad as blaming the other person because codependency is a form of self-harm. I was 3 quarters of the way through writing my book about it when I realized I said, "Wow, uh, this is self-harm and I'm going to address it right in the moment. I said, okay, I just had a revelation. This is self-harm. It's a form of it. It's subconscious. But when you realize you're harming yourself, you're also harming the other person. You're not a codependent enabler. I despise that term. You're a codependent disabler. You're disabling this person from taking responsibility. You're taking on all their responsibility. You're paying all the bills. You're covering up for them. You're lying for them. You're saying, oh, it's not such a bad person. Oh, they're, they're really nice. No, you're covering up. So with the wake up also creates a meltdown. And then you start deconstructing it and reconstructing it. And that, that is best done in therapy. But if you can't, there are ways around it. But boy, you've got to have a good support team. So when you say deconstruct, reconstruct, you look back at the relationship. Yes. Or look for patterns. You deconstruct it and you're like, what was happening? You're, you're literally getting information. Yes. You're looking back and taking inventory without being judgmental toward yourself or the other person. And then check with your childhood. See if that dynamic is a reenactment from childhood. It almost always is. You either had a narcissistic or sociopathic or addicted parent. 
and you have tried to gain mastery with that, that's an old Freudian term as reenactment. You try to gain mastery, you have a compulsion to do that, and you seldom gain mastery. I always tell um, my clients, it's like watching Forrest Gump over and over and over and thinking Jenny won't die at the end, but she will. You can never quite gain okay, mastery. Mary, we need to have a little like a spoiler. warning. Spoiler horn? Yeah, spoiler alert there. What? I mean, Jenny dies at the end. I didn't know that. <laughs> New, now we have a title of the show. Now we've landed. Uh-huh. Jenny dies Jenny at the dies end. Jenny dies at the end. Yeah, no matter what. It's going to be with Mary little... Joy. <laughs> Your name is forever <laughs> associated with Forrest Gump. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it is my favorite film because it's about being you know, fight, flight, and frozen. Lieutenant Dan's all fight. Yeah. And it, it applies to what we're talking about. Because Forrest, was he codependent? Uh, kind of. Yeah. I mean, he he put up with a lot from Jenny. Absolutely. He just didn't have the capacity to understand it. Yeah. Right. But I want to get back to this. You're looking at it. You're taking inventory. Mm-hmm. That's deconstructing. Yes. But you can't judge yourself in that. I think that's what happens. No. Is, is in the moment, you're like, oh, he did X. I'm so stupid. I can't believe I did that. Or he did Y. And oh my God, I can't believe I did this in response. And you start just tearing yourself apart. But but you got to kind of just say what happened and then talk about more specifically reconstruct. It's easier than you might think. Reconstructing is about knowing what you don't want. Many codependents come to me and I used to be one of them. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I want anymore. They've given themselves away so much. So when someone comes to me in codependent crisis for um, for a divorce or uh, for pre-mediation counseling, because people will come to me for that too, I, I take a two-column sheet of paper and I write what they don't want on one side. They're just telling, I tell them, I ask them what they don't want. What they don't know that I'm doing is going to the other side and writing the opposite of that. So if you don't want to be abused, you do want to have a peaceful, loving relationship. If you don't want to be codependent, you do want to be independent. If you don't want to be financially abused, you want to be have financial security. So I, I'm writing what they do want from deductive reasoning of what they don't want. And it's a whole lot easier for someone to tell you what they don't want than it's, is what exactly. they want. Exactly. Because because when you're codependent, your negative mindset is on fire because you're blaming yourself. You never will. when you When you have that aha moment, you go into, like you said, you start judging yourself instead of observing yourself. And then when I find out who they are, I will make, I pretend they've never met anyone in their life. They're a kid with a clean slate. Who's your ideal mate? And it's always them. Always. Like if they want someone who's kind, generous, sweet, loving, it's, it's always their qualities. And they go, okay, this is who you are. And this is what you want. What about that whole opposite attracts thing? Oh, it's so true, but it's such a myth. <laughs> it it works in the short term. Because see, that's the type of legal arguments I make in court, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> Your Honor, this is so true, but it's such it's a, a myth. myth. <laughs> I like to I like to keep the judge guessing. Yes. You know, that's that's really persuasive. Well, it's true because yes. I well, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Mary, but define that. How does how is it true and a myth? Well, it's true that opposites attract because there's deficits in all of us. And and when we're young, we're looking to fill those deficits and those voids. Like if someone's an introvert, they're going to be attracted to an extrovert thinking they really want to be an extrovert when actually they'd be better off with someone who's in the middle. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who's sociable, but not not. I'm like harmony. checking the boxes yeah, here. Making sure. Seth, extrovert. Yeah. Susie, introvert. So <laughs> She even has a pillow that has extrovert in all the qualities 
and then you turn over, it says introvert. Like it's yes. a big joke within our relationship. <laughs> and so. there, there's ambiverts too. There's middle, I'm an ambivert. We're like 59 or 51, 49, 51 introvert, 50, uh, 49 extrovert. You can be, you can be all of you it. You can be an ambivert, right. which is fine. But people that are more alike, it's the Michelangelo phenomenon. These are the old people you see who start looking like each other and finish each, each other's sentences. They're not codependent. They're just interdependent. And that's a healthy thing to be, if that makes sense. Okay. According to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, approximately 10% of children live with a parent with an alcohol use disorder. This is an alarming statistic as a family law professional who deals with custody cases regularly. Finding the balance between the child's safety and helping the child maintain a relationship with both parents is one of the hardest things to navigate. Add in the he said, she said phenomenon that happens with divorcing couples who often weaponize alcohol use against one another, and the situation is even more difficult. All of this is why Soberlink has been one of the most important tools for my clients dealing with these issues. Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring tool has helped over 500,000 people prove their sobriety and provide peace of mind regarding the child's safety. Soberlink helps keep the focus on the best interest of the child, which is really the most important part in a divorce case dealing with children. I've teamed up with Soberlink to create a parenting plan guide to help people going through divorce that involves alcohol in children. And you can download it today at Soberlink.com slash toaster. And if you take a look and you think you're ready to order Soberlink, just mention how to split a toaster for $50 off their device price. Our thanks to Soberlink for sponsoring How to Split a Toaster. Let's let's turn our attention to the actual divorce process. And and Seth, I'm, I'll turn to you because this is I, I'm curious now that Here we've, we go. we've had this whole conversation. How does your experience of a couple in, let's say, codependent crisis divorce, what does it look like in the divorce process? They can't get out of their own way. They can't reach settlement on the simplest of issues from my perspective. And they might continue the litigation because the only thing connecting them is the litigation. So you, you're stuck. You are stuck. You actually, in, in, in Mary will know the whole, how the, the, the um, physiological aspects of this. When I say they can't get out of their own way, it's, I can't get them to a yes to settle. Every time I solve a problem, Pete, they're going to tell me another problem. I solve that problem, it's another problem. And so here's what I mean by that is we're working really hard on defining anything. Let's just call it when we're going to have time sharing. And we say, okay, we're going to agree it's going to be a 50-50 time sharing. And then they say, but what about the holidays? Or I want this holiday or 50-50, but not that day because that's a special day that I always have. And now he wants to trade that day for the other day. Or we get 50-50, but what do we do about those days that there is no school on Monday? How, how do we work that day? I, I want to have that extra day because we don't have school. Let's make it a three-day weekend. But now it might not be 50-50 and say, okay, well, if, it's your, if it attaches to the weekend, then it will be whoever attaches to the weekend. They say, okay, 
but mm, what about my birthday? I'm like, do your kids really want to spend time with you on your birthday? Well, it's very special to me. <laughs> I said, well, that wasn't my question. Right. I don't know any children that really want to spend time with their parents on their birthday. It, you can celebrate that anytime, right? How hard is it to tell a child, look, I know it's my birthday. Let's celebrate this weekend. Go, go have fun with dad, right? So there's always another problem. But from, from this conversation, what I'm hearing is they're not really fighting about that problem. No. No. No, not at all. It's if, oh, you solve this, I'm no longer going to be connected. Maybe we'll get our case settled. I won't be with this person anymore. I better come up with another problem so I can stay connected to this person. Then I solve that problem. Same dynamic. And so what I do is when I see that behavior, I call it out. I say, every time I solve a problem, you give me another problem. I don't believe at this moment in time, you truly are able to settle your case. What's the reaction? What's the reaction to that? They're like, well, yes, I am. I said, I don't think you are because every time I solve a problem, you give me another problem. So we need to really look into that. And that's where Pete, which this is not what is used commonly in describing lawyers anymore. It's attorney and counselor at law. Right, right. That is the counselor at law section in my view especially in family law. It's the psychology of. Do you find you use the words? Do you do you tell that do you call it out by name? Like this is what what I'm seeing here is some codependent behavior and we we should put that on the table. Do you ever do you like are you that open with them about that, counselor? Yes. I am the most direct lawyer I think I've ever met. My clients know that I am no bullshit. And I'll tell them I can be wrong but this is what I see. And I've been doing this a long time. It's okay to be wrong if you're honest. Yeah. All right. And the more confident I am that I'm right, the higher likelihood that I'm wrong. I'm just letting you know, there's a weird <laughs> thing in physics. <laughs> when I swear to my, my team, who I, we have an amazing team here at the firm, that the file is not on my desk, there's a weird law in physics that the higher likelihood that it's actually on my desk. Yeah. I get that. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> but Mary, is that is that what you see when you in a mediation and you can't get these people to yes? Yes, I have had many attorneys call me and say, "Please help me. I'm legal counsel. You're a counselor, counselor." And uh, I I do help people like that. I say, "Please stop fight." I always tell them the devil is in the details, and the day they, they're fighting over couches and hunting dogs and and. It, uh, crazy things. And I always tell them, you are not going to want to sit on the couch that your ex sat on. You're going to want a new one at some point. And I'm allowed to do that as a, as a counselor where you, where I can't do it as a mediator. As a mediator, I have to be Switzerland and it's very difficult. Uh, it's a very difficult, it's very difficult to switch those roles. But I do, I do exactly what Seth does. I love it that he's direct. I just tell him you're, you're either codependent or sometimes I'll tell the narcissist, you're being a narcissist. Just Give it up. You can't pound this person into the ground. You can't take everything they've got. That's not how the court is. It's equitable in the state that I live in. It's equitable distribution. So I, I, I do the same thing. I'm a solution-focused therapist, so I'm not a how-does-that-make-you-feel therapist. I'm a how-do-you-want-to-feel therapist, and how can I help you get there? Same thing as a mediator. How can we reach an agreement? And I start with the common ground instead of the divisive adversarial ground. I start collaborating instead of competing. It's like a competition, isn't it, Seth? They're just like in competition. They just don't stop. Right. 
in competition, which neither one of them are going to win. Correct. They're going <laughs> to drain their bank accounts. Exactly. I am going to have a larger bank account, not a smaller one. Yes. When they talk to me about the couch and I get to tell them, we can argue about personal property. I'm $450 an hour. And I will tell you the floor under Florida law is that the value of that couch is garage sale value. Yes. I will also tell you that the judge, and I have a case right on point on this because we just used it in a trial, that sentimental value is also important. The judge can consider your sentimental value on why you want that couch. How much money do you want to spend talking to me and preparing you for your deposition and then ultimately your trial to talk about the sentimentality of a couch? Yes. Is there a sentimental garage sale value? Is that a, because that's, that's something I could lean in on. Okay. <laughs> okay bottom, Pete. bottom of the barrel uh, sentiment. I'm coming at you, but <laughs> I know it's you true. and you decorate your walls with old electronic devices. I <gasps> was worried you were going to call it junk. You've been out Because that, would those never, would be fighting words, sir. I would no never, Treasures. never dare to do that. Right. Which his wife wants to bury for a treasure trove. Yeah. But that's a whole nother story. That's another podcast. But to you, yeah. those are very sentimental. But financially, they're not worth anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. How much can you sell them for? I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> I'm in denial. <laughs> You guys, you guys are now picking on me, and I'm. Uh, no. Do you see me shrinking in my chair? I'm not saying that you're a hoarder, so don't take it the wrong no, way. No, it's okay? meticulously organized junk. It's it's very. I did not call it junk either, but I am one that likes to get yeah. rid of things. Yes, I don't like having a lot of things. Okay, but the things I have, I want to be nice. And I want to take care of. The only thing I ever hoard is my American Express points. Yeah. I got a million of those babies. <laughs> Good for you. I don't want to give them up. <laughs> But that's the problem, yeah. right? Is Pete yes. is is back to this divorce is that you can't get out of your own way. That's it. And, so true. And ultimately, ultimately, you will be divorced unless both of you decide to stay together. And so you're prolonging the inevitable. Thank you. Because finally, at one point, the judge is going to look at their docket and say. It's 2022, and this case has been pending since 2018. I'm setting it for trial, counsel. Get ready. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, judge, we haven't finished discovery. I want to file the motion because I want this evaluation or that evaluation, or I need an appraisal. Well, you've had four years, counsel. We're going to trial. So ultimately, it's going to get set, and you're going to get divorced, and you're just running out the clock, delaying it, push, kicking the can down the road. Any of those sayings that you want to use that 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 make it understandable for you, but it's just um, it's bad, and it and it's and the, the divorce process takes up so much time. So, Mary, I'm going to ask you this: Do you talk to them and meet with them after it's over? And what is the difference in their personality, their demeanor when it's divorced? Like they get the paper signed six months later, the day of six months, a year later. How is that different? They're usually relieved because I do usually see the codependent. The, and the narcissist, the narcissistic or the selfish person tends to be the one that drags it out more. So Seth, that you made me feel a little better about my divorce. I didn't do what you did. I actually would put a watch on my bed 
for the billable hours. And I told my attorney one time, I said, in all fairness, I know you're going to make more money if you think I want that couch, but I don't. I would just set fire to it. So let's let's move to the next topic. because Which leads the Lord to say, on the advice of counsel, do not set fire to the couch. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But I said, I don't care about the couch. And then I I tell people too, that if they expedite the divorce process, because that's what I did, I actually... Instead of spending a lot of money getting a divorce, I was trying to shorten the process. Um, my ex was not. I was trying. He was more controlling, so I was trying to shorten the process. And I just moved to Maui for a few months with some friends and recovered. I tell people to have reverence for that severance and to not date, not go crazy, and just just be calm, just just chill out, and just observe your behavior and explore freedom, what freedom feels like. Do not get in another relationship because you're highly, uh, you're highly um, susceptible to getting into another relationship. Well, that was going to be my next question, right? I know Pete was going there too, but let's just talk about if they don't do that. Like, and this is my experience, I guess, Mary, and I'm asking if you see the same, the relief. Yes. First off, once the agreement is signed, if you reach an agreement, and then when it actually comes through the divorce, and I tell them, don't date anyone serious for at least a year until after the yes. final paperwork was signed by the judge. Go enjoy yourself. Find who you are. But the relief is almost immediate. Sometimes oh, there's like is. this emotional escape, which is also relief. People start crying and they're like, I wanted the divorce. Why am I crying? And I'm like, because it's been hanging over you this whole time, right? So long. And I tell people sometimes no one wants a divorce. But some people need a divorce and there is a big difference, the same want and need. You know, it's very different to say, I want to drink or need a drink. So it, sometimes if people realize they need a divorce instead of want one, some of that fighting stops and, and we can get them to agree to disagree and move on with their lives. They tell them your life will be so much better. They have grief. And then, like you said, Seth, it's relief that when that blue ink hits the paper, there's some sadness and maybe an epiphany or catharsis, but there's a lot of relief and they just feel that way. And Pete, you, you might as well ask, I know I'm about to, about next relationship, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I, you know, how often if you're, if you've been stuck in this pattern in one relationship, how, what is the likelihood of bouncing into another and falling into the same pattern again? A lot, a lot, unless you have awareness, you really have to become self-aware. Yeah. It is going to, especially codependent people, narcissists were really never, if they're actually a narcissist, uh, they, they don't have a lot of insight. They're highly likely to find someone else they could control and there might be a willing participant for that. So that's okay. But, but for someone who's or codependent or someone who's likely to get hurt again, do a check on all your relationships, especially with your early caregivers, your mom, your dad your family dynamic, check and check your childhood so you don't carry those attachment disorders into adulthood. Find out what's operating and again, deconstruct it and reconstruct it. Now, Mary, let me let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Some people are like, I'm not getting into that mumbo jumbo. I'm not talking about my childhood. Can they do this other exercise that you did is make a list of what you don't want and then on the other side of the paper, it's telling you what you do want. Yes. Well, that's what I did. I already knew about my childhood. I learned that in school. But yeah, that's exactly how I did it. I went, let's do it. But if you don't want to go back to your childhood, if you don't want to do that, and what we always are talking about, go see a counselor and get a good one. There's good ones and bad ones, like in all professions. But if at least, 
at least take the 10 minutes and write your list of what you don't want, do the opposite, and that's what you're then looking for in that relationship. Yes. And whenever the, whenever the don't pops in, check yourself right away. You know the other, the end, uh, the, and I'm, I'm not plugging, I'm just telling you that at the end of each chapter in my book is a don't want and do want list. It's And then at the end of the book, they get rid of the left side of the list so they're only left with what's right for them. Seriously, that is how I did it. Well, we're, we're going to have Pete plug you anyway, so you can plug away. Go ahead. But it is. It is that simple. That is exactly what I did. I go, this is what I don't want. And your don't want list is going to seem ridiculous to other people. Don't let anyone else read it. Like, I won't even tell you what was on my list because it, it could offend someone out there. What I didn't want somebody to, you know, I didn't want this behavior in a person. It wasn't a bad thing, just something I just, it's just a personal, I don't agree with it. So um, you, you do and don't want. And it, that deductive reason, it is so scientific, deductive reasoning. If this, then that. It's straight out of a logic textbook. I, I feel like it's it's a pretty useful like 10-minute investment, especially if you have been in this relationship and the first time you are being confronted with the fact that this behavior might be unhealthy is from your lawyer. Like, if I've never thought that this behavior is damaging in any way, and Seth tells me, hey, I think you might be codependent, that's a jarring awakening for me. That's like, that's a hard, that's a hard get. Yes. Right? Like, that. that's going to take some adjustment. Yeah, that's what I like about Seth. I told my lawyer I was codependent. He didn't believe me and he didn't know what it meant. I'm like, you don't understand. Like, you got to help me out here. You got to fight for me because I won't fight for me. You need to fight for me. Yeah, right. That's why you need the counsel part. Right. Yeah. Right. And part of that fighting for you, though, that clients don't understand is they always perceive the fighting against the other lawyer or the other side. Right. Fighting for someone is not fighting against the other person. Right. And sometimes it's fighting against you, the client. Yes. It, oh, it can be. Don't do that. Right. Don't go doing X, Y, and Z. Do not text your spouse about anything before talking to me. Thank you. And they're like, well, that's running up a bill. I said, no, it's saving you money. Right. Do not get a restraining order and then go to lunch with them. Right. Oh, my goodness. That's pathological altruism. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, do we need to talk about specific issues that, that come up in mediation, right? Both of you are uh, mediators. And, and, and you know, is it, we, we've talked about this set of behaviors around, you know, codependency, pathological altruism and divorce. Is it any different in mediation or have we pretty much covered the bases? Pete, before we get there, because Mary might want to add something. I think Mary just said something very important, almost jokingly. And, you know, we got Andy, our producer, who's also on the screen, just never, he's our silent partner. And he just dropped his head like, how could that possibly be that you get a restraining order and then go to lunch with the person? Yes. Like, like think that through for a minute. You yes. might, you might have called the cops. They might have gotten arrested. You might have gotten the restraining order, not in the criminal side, on the civil side of the case. And then you have these protections. And then you reach out to them or they call you and you respond. How does that happen, Mary? It's the trauma bond. And, and I'm glad I was aware of all that stuff. You just don't do it. In fact, my attorney did what in, in Florida, they just automatically will put restraining orders. And I said, I can't be a counselor and have restraining order against me, even in a civil way. You know, I just can't. I said, I don't have no intention of seeing him. I have every intention for you to talk for me, with me, through me. That's your job as my attorney. Um, so yes, please 
everybody realize, listen to your attorney. I cannot tell you how many times a week I tell people to listen to their attorney and to help your attorney to listen to what you really do want. And not in all the details. I tell them, bring your details to me and and then I'll, I'll help them with lists to help their attorney, to help you help them, Seth. You know, I... I will touch on things that matter. And I tell them also, uh, you may disagree with this or not, but I tell them to read the, the statutes in the state that I live in. I open up the, the statutes and I say, read the Florida statutes. It's not rocket science. Oh my God, you're killing me now. You're <laughs> killing me. Now. I'm going to get back to Pete's question about mediation, Pete. I haven't forgotten about that. So here's okay. the deal. Because right. it helps in mediation too, because that's it, it helps. I tell people... Don't believe anything you read on the internet unless it's on my website, mm-hmm. right? Because a lawyer, we always have an exception to the rule. <laughs> so, but that's one. And when you go to read the statutes, if you're getting them from your lawyer and you're sitting down with your lawyer and going through the statute, I'm 100% okay. I'm not okay with my clients playing lawyer. Oh, right? no, I, I agree. But I what they'll do is right. they'll read the statute, then they'll go to the case law. And then here we go, Pete, check your local jurisdiction. <sighs> You're talking to me about a case out of New York and I'm in Florida. So Yeah, I don't tell them to go very, to the case law. It can get dicey. <laughs> I you do guys, not do that. I'm an avid self-diagnostician <laughs> with WebMD. Are you telling me that's wrong too? <laughs> Why no? <laughs> Why no? It's perfectly fine. <laughs> she says facetiously. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, seriously, when I go on WebMD, they're like, Obviously, you're a basketball player. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> something's not right here. <laughs> right. Well, let's get, right. get back to the mediation question. Is it, okay. let's, uh, how does that, how does it settle I, in? I think, I think a lot of it, Pete, isn't in mediation. It's preparing for mediation. You have to have these conversations before you get there. You have to meet with your client. If you're the client, you need to meet with your lawyer and understand the different potential settlement options and how we might need to pivot. You're not going to get everything you want, but what is important to you in prioritizing it? And if you can get some of those top priorities, we can let the other things go. Or if they give me more alimony, maybe I'll give up on this piece of the retirement account that's a little bit in question of how much is mine or how much is his or how much is marital or not marital. So if you have these conversations about your different options, it's all preparing you to end the litigation and hence the relationship. Yes. But you can't just do that in the moment. And some people will say, well, Seth, what's the longest mediation you've had? I'm like, well, in one day, it was 12 to 15 hours. And they're like, oh my God. And I'm like, that was day one of the same mediation, which then got continued to a day two or a day three. And I've had clients who have become self-aware through the process, Pete, that have told me there's no way I could have settled these issues a year ago because I wasn't in the right frame of mind to do so. But it took the year of actually being physically separated from their spouse to break the codependency. Because in that year, got a job, got a raise, got a second job. Like There's all this independent stuff going on that has helped over time break it, and now we can settle. Yeah. So it's not going to happen just in that moment, in those two to four hours or eight hours of mediation. You got to be prepped for it. Mary, anything to add? 
Well, it, and I agree with everything Seth said. I do. And please, please don't go to case law. Uh, uh, you can read statutes, but <laughs> I, I send them to the statutes so they will can talk to you so they don't bog an attorney down with details. Tell them this is, this is what the, the state goes. No, by. And I appreciate what you're saying on that, Mary. But my point on that is you should be meeting with your lawyer to go through the statute. Exactly. Exactly. I, I do tell, listen to your lawyer. I probably say, listen to your lawyer, maybe 15, 20 times a week. <laughs> He doesn't, do. he doesn't need to hear this, Mary. It's okay. No, don't. I know. I'm just being the ego. You know, I used to be coded. I'm just I was about to say, Pete, you hear I'm what she's kidding. saying? I'm not going to ring that bell. I've been taught. Ding, ding, ding. Well, He's like, let me get back to the junk that's hanging on my wall. Well, well I will get to, I'll get to the flip side of it because what I see, and, it, and really, it is a tragedy when I see it. And I almost did it. So it's a tragedy. And I've done it in different, I did it in different respects when I went through the divorce. But when I see someone and I did it in areas where I should not have, they give up everything. I spend a lot of time with codependents telling them just because you want it over and just because you're scared of him or her, because they're, you know, there's sociopaths or women too. Um, I tell them, please don't give up everything. They said, no, I just want it over with. I just want to get on with my life. I said, yes, but you're, you're entitled to some things and you're willing to take nothing in order to expedite it. And I don't know if you've ever been in that process, Seth, but it's horrible. In that point, just to, to close on this, Pete, I think is important, is part of it is I just want to be done. I don't care. Right. And, and I tell them, you can be done today and you might have buyer's remorse tomorrow or four or five years down the road. And I've heard that from people that have come to talk to me and later on, they're like, I want it out so bad, Seth. I really wish I would have hired you in hindsight. But here's what I tell them when you're actually in that, feeling that. I said, it's easy to say, hard to do. Live your life, not your divorce. Beautiful. Your phone is there for one reason only. We all have cell phones for one reason only, our own convenience. Don't make that a line to let them start pushing your buttons, right? Exactly. You're hiring me to carry these rocks for you. Go see a counselor. I'll carry these heavy rocks for you. I'll get you through this process as quickly as I can, which is I can only go as the slowest person or entity, which usually is the court system or the other lawyer or the person on the other side, but we can keep moving it forward, but let me do my job. Yes. So that's just a choice you have to make. And Cases settle when they're ready to settle. Most cases get resolved within six to 18 months. I ask them for that time. I'm clear on that time. We keep moving forward. Hey, this is the step we took. Here's what's next. And if you keep them informed, they feel better that, okay, okay, okay. Especially if they just stop reading the text. Stop reading the text. That's a title. Exactly. I actually have people put stop signs on their screensaver on their phone because I say your cell phone's not a leash. Because as a visual aid, we all know what a stop sign looks like. It's red. It's huge. You, even if you don't have the word stop on it, I, I have them put that on their screensaver. And and thank you, Seth, because I do tell people, please, I always tell them, because they'll come to me for legal advice. I'm like, I know I have an invisible lawyer standing next to me that tells me I can't give you legal advice. I like that guy. Yeah, I like that guy, too. Yeah, he looks I like, like Seth I know, to I me. Have, I mean, right I'm there. aware of him all the time. I guess growing up as a psychiatrist home, because <laughs> I did work for my dad uh, when I was younger, I was always aware of that invisible lawyer in the room, the, the ethics, the 
you know, but I do tell people, please, I can't give you legal advice, but I can tell you that your lawyer has it and I'll give you emotional advice to help you through the legal process to push them forward. And sometimes the best thing to do, as you know, when you're in heavy litigation is nothing like continuances are made for that. Do nothing. Sometimes my client calls me, what do you think we should do? Nothing. 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 Continue. And that's when everything good happens. When they do nothing, everything good happens. That's that's true. I actually heard that from my brother who was an attorney and other attorney friends that I grew up with and uh, that are attorneys now. I didn't grow up with them as attorneys, but they also said the best thing to do when you don't know what to do is nothing. It truly, it's just, it is a, it's like a retreat in a foxhole. When, when the battle gets too intense, retreat, recoup, regroup, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And uh, on that point, we should wrap it up. Uh, Mary Joy, you are fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. you got to tell us about the book, Codependent Discovery and Recovery 2.0. Yes, I pretty much told you about it. It's what you do want what you, from deducted what you deductive reasoning from what you don't want in your life. And it and it gives neuroscience, financial abuse, Sethel like that, because there's a whole chapter. Also, I have a closet codependent chapter that has lawyers, doctors, therapists. There are closet codependents that will just burn out. You give out to you burn out. So it's good information and it helps you just with Seth said, if you don't want to go through your childhood, skip that chapter and just go to the end. I even have meditations and, you know, like guided imagery, not really meditations. And they're on YouTube for free. So even if you don't buy the book, they're, they're there on YouTube. So, and it, it'll helps people discover and recover basically. We will put a link to all of your resources in the show notes. Thank Please you. check those out either uh, in the podcast notes or over on the website. Thank you so much, Mary Joy. You are fantastic. We sure appreciate you. Thank you, gentlemen. I enjoyed it. I did. I love good banter. <laughs> awesome. Seth is Seth is good for that. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to this show. On behalf of Mary Joy and Seth Nelson, America's favorite divorce attorney, I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next week right here on How to Split a Toaster, a divorce podcast about saving your relationships. Seth Nelson is an attorney with Nelson Coster Family Law and Mediation with offices in Tampa, Florida. While we may be discussing family law topics, How to Split a Toaster is not intended to, nor is it providing legal advice. Every situation is different. If you have specific questions regarding your situation, please seek your own legal counsel with an attorney licensed to practice law in your jurisdiction. Pete Wright is not an attorney or employee of Nelson Coster. Seth Nelson is licensed to practice law in Florida.